and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. My daughter Helena has this ceramic tea set, and it is a cherished possession, even though one of the teacups is actually broken. And it's not just a little bit broken, it's broken into multiple pieces, but we can still have a tea party if I take every one of those pieces and kind of fit them together and hold my fingers in precisely the right configuration to keep the whole thing from falling apart. And then we can pretend to drink tea and have a good time. But if I just moved one of my fingers, basically the whole thing would collapse into like five different little shards of ceramic X teacup. So me holding it together is what allows everything to work. And this is maybe a tiny bit like the way God relates to creation. So God is not the creator of creation only in the sense of in the beginning doing some stuff. Instead, he is constantly giving being to the creation. He is constantly holding the whole thing together, holding the whole thing in being. Everything that is has existence because God is actively, intentionally holding it together. So if God took his finger off one of the cracks at some point, the whole thing would just completely fall apart. We would all fall from being into non-being, from existence into nothingness. We sometimes think about power as the ability to get someone to do something. So I can pay someone to do something even if he or she doesn't want to do it, or I can threaten someone into doing something even if he or she doesn't want to do it, and I can exert power over them through my sticks and my carrots. But this is a very limited understanding of power. When we say that God is all-powerful, it's not just that he can make you do something regardless of whether or not you want to do it. Instead, it's that he is constantly keeping everything together. Everything relies on his actions. The difference between existence and non-existence for the entire world, for the universe, for every single person, for every single atom, relies on his intentionally keeping it all together. And this is the doctrine of God's omnipotence. This is what it means for God to be all-powerful. Absolutely everything depends on his loving, intentionally keeping everything together, keeping all of us in life, keeping all of us in existence. He's doing all. What it doesn't mean is something that you sometimes see on billboards or on bumper stickers. And this is the statement that God is in control. And what this means is that God is responsible for the actions of everybody, the thoughts of everybody, the phenomena that happen in the world, the chain of cause and effect. God is kind of like this cosmic chess player who is moving one person and saying, you win the lottery. And another person, you get cancer. A third, you're going to die as an eight-year-old. A fourth, you're going to get to live to be 65. That's actually not what we believe about God. That's certainly not what the early church believed about God. That would imply that the world is as God wants it. He's controlling everything. He's moving all the pieces, moving all of us around. And so this is pretty much the best of all possible worlds from his perspective. And if that's true, then he has a very strange perspective. 
we have a world in which the Holocaust happened. We have a world in which there's radical inequality and cruelty and unkindness and disease and natural disasters, all kinds of things, these things that are sometimes ironically called acts of God, these horrific natural disasters where it's just totally unpredictable. But those are things that are not acts of God in any way. For the early church, the way the world is, is kind of the opposite of what God wants. God doesn't want a world in which death exists. God doesn't want a world in which sin and evil have sway over humankind. God wants a world that looks like Eden, this perfection of peace and joy, and most of all, loving unity with himself. There's this Hebrew word mishpat, and it means judgment. And so, uh, from the biblical perspective, what happens on the day of judgment is the day of mishpat. It's the day of reordering everything in creation to be the way it's supposed to be. It's writing everything. It's correcting everything. It's putting it all back together, putting it all back in place, recreating harmony, recreating the creation as God intended it, what the Bible calls the new creation. And if God were in control as things are, what would there be to reorder to his liking? Instead, we are in this world that has gone completely off the rails, where we have to endure all the suffering, where we treat one another without love, where we don't love God. This is the opposite of what it looks like when God is in control. And God is not only not in control of the actions of Hitler or St. Francis, he's also not in control of what wave patterns do when they turn into tsunamis, what wind patterns do when they turn into tornadoes, what cell patterns do when they turn into cancers, when viruses attack our bodies, when bacteria create plagues. That is not actually God's doing. God is not in control of those things. Instead, what's playing out are processes of cause and effect that exist in a creation in which everything is tending towards death. Everything is tending towards dissolution and destruction. Your body will fall apart someday. The house you live in will fall apart someday. The nation you live in will probably fall apart someday. Everything has an endpoint to which it's moving. And when our bodies start to decay, or when nature goes awry and kills, that's just part of that process of cause and effect of this ultimate destruction to which things tend in this version of the creation, this fallen version of the creation. But that's not God's doing. There are times, of course, when God does intervene in those processes of cause and effect and change the outcome. He might intervene in a cancer and stop its growth in response to fervent prayer. He might stop a tsunami for his own reasons or to show his love for people. There are all sorts of ways in which God does intervene in these processes of cause and effect, but those are called miracles. Those are not the normative way in which God relates to the creation. Instead, these are these wondrous, astonishing revelations of the presence of God. So according to the fathers, according to Genesis, in the beginning you have Adam and Eve and they are in the garden and the evil one, the tempter, the serpent, comes to them. And he says, you should pluck this fruit, you should eat this fruit. If you do this, you won't even need God anymore. You yourselves will be like God, and you can just forget about him. He can just be some guy who lives over there. You're, you're basically your own gods. And according to church fathers like Augustine, and also according to Jewish sources like the Talmud, Adam and Eve in that moment had free will. 
And for Augustine and for the Talmud, that means something even more than just being able to choose between accepting God and rejecting God. Free will under those conditions means that you have freedom that is not modified by any interior or exterior circumstance. So there are some decisions you make that you're just looking at the facts and you're thinking about the outcome and you make a decision. And it's not a product of passion or fear or desire. It's just kind of like doing the math. This is what adds up. So I don't think anybody in the history of the world has ever decided to buy a million shares of some company because it had a cool stock symbol. I don't think anyone's ever said like, wow, that's JJM. I don't know what that is, but I'm just going to invest my whole life savings in that. That just sounds fantastic. I love the thought of being a JJM owner. That's just not how people make financial decisions. Instead, you'd look at the performance of JJM, what they make, whether or not you believe in the product, what you think is going to happen with the future of JJM, and you'd make a rational choice just based on what you think the stock is actually worth. This is opposed to the way you might buy a car. You might say, okay, what I'm looking for is something that has four wheels, an engine, gets okay gas mileage, and will get me to work every day. But then you get to the car lot, and you're like, oh my gosh, this one has an amazing stereo system, and wow, that red color is really eye-catching, and oh my gosh, the fins on this 1957 Cadillac are just beautiful. This is a work of art. And you have all these kind of intuitive and passionate uh, products of desire or excitement that go into that decision-making process. So for Augustine, we don't actually have free will. We have what he called free choice. So we are able to make choices, and they are meaningful, real choices that we ourselves are actually making. We're responsible for our actions, but they're not totally free in the way that Adam and Eve were. So when the snake came to Adam and Eve and said, why don't you eat of this tree? You'll be like gods. They weren't acting out of fear. They weren't acting out of desire or passion. They were just sort of saying, okay, yeah, okay, in the grand scheme of things, I think that's the decision I'm going to make. And they're making that decision, like reading numbers on a spreadsheet. We today, when we are confronted with doing the will of God, are often influenced by our fears, our passions, and desires. So if in the word of God we're told not to covet, Well, whether or not we covet is not just an on and off switch. You don't say, henceforth, I will never again covet. Instead, you're like looking in a magazine and you see this beautiful watch and you think, oh my gosh, if I had that watch, people would take me seriously. They would think, oh, they think I'm a really important person. It's so expensive. It's so fancy. It's so beautifully crafted. It's a work of art. I really want that watch. We're not just thinking, that tells time and I need to know what time it is. So spending $18,000, that's a fairly reasonable purchase. Instead, we are so influenced by just all these passions that overwhelm us. The same with something like anger. You know, you you don't have someone cut you off in traffic and then rationally think, I think what would be best in this situation, best for myself and also best for the other driver, is if I chase him down and honk at him at the next seven lights and eventually rear end his car and try and pick a fight. No one in their right mind would think that's really going to that's going to make my day the best it's going to make his day the best and it'll turn out best for everyone in their long run instead you're just seized by the passion of anger and you act in this completely irrational way so for Adam and Eve there was none of that so the choice that they made to reject God 
and to begin worshipping themselves or trying to be their own gods, that was just a choice they made in complete freedom. So our choices and their choices are a bit different. As the Church Father St. Gregory of Nyssa said it, this creature man, then, did not possess as a property of his nature at the beginning any inclination to passion, any inclination to anger or covetousness or whatever it is. But the elements of passion were introduced later on, after he was created, and in the following way. Man was, as we have said, in the image and likeness of the power that rules all creation, and also extended to man's power of self-determination. Man could choose whatever pleased him, and was not enslaved to any external necessity. So now we're in this weird situation, in which we still have a measure of freedom, but we are influenced by the passions. So Adam and Eve, they had no passions, they had no anger, they had no covetousness. Every decision was made based on like, well, this looks good on the basis of the outcomes. Looking at the spreadsheet, doing the math, I think this is the choice we want to make. But now after the fall, we are always being blown about by all these different passions raging within us. Oh, I want a new kitchen. I need a kitchen remodel. Oh, I want to go on a date with this person. Oh, I want to make more money. Oh, I want to be respected by people. Oh, I want more friends. Oh, I have too many friends. So we have all these passions raging within us and they cloud and influence our decision-making. This is something that early rabbinic commentaries call the Yetzer Hara. It's the inclination to turn away from God. And they would say that Adam and Eve had the Yetzer Hara, this inclination to turn away from God, but it was an external inclination. It was in the mouth of a snake. So the serpent would say to them, you should turn away from God, but they didn't have this passion within them, this desire within them, this fear within them that caused them to turn away from God. Instead, it was just the snake trying to convince them to do that. But after the fall, that inclination, that Yetzirah, moves inside them. And now that voice is kind of part of their decision-making process internally. So we still have freedom, and yet we are influenced by our passions, our fears, our desires, all this stuff. And there's no way to just get back to looking at every decision on the basis of rationality and outcomes. Instead, we are kind of stuck in this place of being heavily influenced by the passions. And the only thing that can silence those voices is the grace of God. So God offers to us the grace of transcending those passions, transcending those influencing voices so that we are able to overcome lives of selfishness and live lives of love. Love for God and love for our neighbor. But it's only through his gift of grace that we are able to overcome them, that we are able to silence this voice of the enemy within us, able to overcome this, this Jewish concept of the Yetzer Hara. And the fathers were basically all agreed on this idea. How all this worked? There were a million different theories. Some thought, that God has to do everything, that God almost takes away our agency in giving us lots of grace. And that perspective was eventually condemned by the church, that God does still maintain our freedom, even though we're in need of his grace. On the other hand, there were the others that thought that we have to do everything ourselves. We have to kind of work up to this place where we can receive his grace by doing tons and tons of good deeds. We almost have to earn his grace. And the church said that is definitely not the case. That is 100% wrong. 
And so developing in the 5th and 6th centuries, you have this spectrum of understandings of the way that grace and free will relate. And on one side, you have a doctrine that doesn't actually come from St. Augustine, but it's called Augustinianism. It's, it's kind of from Augustine's followers. And it's this idea that basically God does everything. And uh, you don't even really have a choice in whether or not you accept grace. God gives you a gift, and if you get the gift, you take it. And if you don't have the gift, well, too bad for you because you're going to be a totally evil person. And then on the other side of the spectrum is what's called Pelagianism. Pelagius was this guy from the UK. We don't know if he was Irish, if he was Scottish. Um, One writer talks about him being from Ireland. One writer talks about him being a big fat man stuffed with stout Scottish porridge. Regardless, he comes to Rome and he starts uh, working as a kind of spiritual director to a bunch of wealthy people. And he has this training program. He's like a fifth century motivational speaker. And he's like, all right, everybody, I want you to get out there and I want you to give me 20 push-ups, and I want you to go do some good deeds. And I want you to say 400 prayers because you just got to work at this. Pelagius had this idea that grace was possible, that God sometimes did give us special grace to do his will, but you didn't actually need it. So he said, you could be like a giant Roman galley ship out on the ocean. And if a galley ship gets a strong wind in its sails, it just shoots across the water. But if it doesn't have a strong wind, you've just got to put out the oars and do some rowing. And for Pelagius, these uh, moments of great grace were kind of like that strong wind which fills your sails, and they allowed you to just race towards the love of God, race towards the love of neighbor. But if you don't have one of those, then you got to get to work. For Pelagius, there was no change in humanity at the fall. So when Adam and Eve rejected God, nothing really changed. All they did was set a really bad example. They were like the kids in junior high that your parents do not want you to hang out with. So Adam and Eve set this example of not listening to God, not obeying God, and that's what people have been doing ever since. That's the only thing we knew. He was our, they were our first parents, and so, you know, we do what our parents do. And even though we have the freedom to perfectly obey God, we just haven't been doing it. Christ comes not necessarily to defeat sin and evil and death in his own person, destroying death forever. Christ comes primarily to give us the good example. Christ is the kid who is in the chess club. He is in the glee club. He is Phi Beta Kappa. He is an honor student. He is the kid your parents really want you to hang out with. And once you start hanging out with him, you will start imitating him. You will stop using bad words. You will stop listening to Metallica. And you will start to obey God. You will start loving God and your neighbor because you're following this really good example. And some might argue that this is still a perspective which exists in the church, that Jesus primarily came to teach some very strong moral principles and maybe also some spiritual principles, and if you internalize those, you're basically good to go. That he provides this example, all we have to do is follow the example, and that is Christianity. Nothing about defeating sin, evil, and death, no resurrection, etc., etc. There's a major council, the Council of Ephesus, at which Pelagius is totally condemned. They're like, okay, this guy, maybe he's never read the Bible, we don't know what's going on, but this is definitely not Christianity. You need the grace of God to do anything good. You can't know God, you can't follow God, you can't express love without grace itself. Grace is absolutely essential. Grace is God's good gift of himself, in a way, his actions in the world. 
And then slightly later at the Council of Orange, the church also said, and you know what, that thing on the other side, Augustinianism, where God either just gives grace to some and withholds grace from others, and if you don't have very much grace, you turn into Hitler, and if you have a ton of grace, you turn into Mother Teresa, and that's the only difference between Hitler and Mother Teresa, that is also not what the church teaches. No, you're actually, you do have free will. Maybe not in the way that Adam and Eve had it, but you have some freedom. God actually does give you meaningful freedom, and you have the power to choose God or to reject God. So for the church, for the church fathers, for the early church, there is no sense that you can earn your way to salvation by helping X number of blind people cross the street or by saying X number of prayers. There's no way that you can, by your tiny, little, largely impotent actions, earn your way to being a co-heir with Christ in the kingdom, reigning with Christ eternally, being accepted as sons and daughters of the Father. That just doesn't make sense. That would be completely crazy. So you don't buy your salvation through your works. On the other hand, there's also this sense that your works really do matter. Because every time you are doing something good, it's because you are choosing God. You are accepting the gift that God is holding out to you. So in Deuteronomy, we're told, I hold before you the way of life and the way of death. Choose the way of life. God is constantly holding out to us this gift of life, this gift of wisdom, this gift of the way of love, of the way of joy, the way of peace, and that is grace. And all we can do is either accept grace or reject grace. And grace is offered to absolutely everybody. So like with any gift, you can receive the gift, you can tear open the wrapping, you can look in the box, you can say, oh my gosh, this is the most beautiful bracelet I've ever seen, put it on and go look in the mirror, Or you can take the box and you can say, I don't want your garbage, you dirtbag, get out of my house, and toss the box out into the street. As someone receiving the gift, you have that choice. And so God offers you something infinitely more precious than a diamond tennis bracelet, and you have the choice of either saying, yes, I take the gift of love. I take the gift of goodness. I take this gift of peace, which allows me to follow you. I take this gift which silences that voice of the enemy within me, which works to silence my passions, works to silence my fear, works to silence my selfishness, and replaces them with the gifts of the Spirit, with faith and hope and love, with charity and patience and kindness. I choose to accept that gift, or I can toss it out the front door. And this is basically what our freedom comes down to according to the fathers of the early church. So to go back to our old friend Irenaeus of Lyon and ask him, is God in control? Does God control our lives? Does God control our actions, our thoughts, what we do? He says, This expression of our Lord, How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing, set forth the ancient law of human liberty, because God made man free from the beginning, possessing his own power, even as he does his own soul, to obey the behests of God, voluntarily and not by compulsion of God. And this is a common theme among the fathers. You hear this reflected in various places, that God does not use force upon us. God does not make us do his will. And some might ask the question, 
Why not? Maybe he should. Wouldn't the world be an infinitely better place if Hitler came up with the Holocaust and God just sort of zapped him with a laser beam of conscience and said, oh, wait, oh, no, that would be killing millions and millions of my fellow humans, my brothers and sisters, these people infinitely loved by God. That's a terrible idea. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go back to art school. Yes, the world would be a better place. But if we were all basically like robots who could only choose to do God's will, if we just had this internal program and we only did what we were programmed to do, which was to be good, to be obedient, to be honest, to be peaceful, we wouldn't actually be like living, breathing humans. I mean, that that would be a very different understanding of what humanity was if we didn't have any choices, if we didn't have any thoughts that were our own, if we didn't have any will that was our own, what would that be to be a human? Still, you might say the creation would be in better shape if humans were those kind of like robots instead of um, people who could choose for themselves. But there's a big problem. God did not create us to fear him, nor did God create us to obey him. He doesn't want obedient servants. He doesn't want scared servants. God created us to love him. And love is not something that you can achieve through compulsion. So if I say to you, I'm going to beat you up if you don't fall in love with me, you're not going to fall in love with me. If I say, I'm going to give you $100,000 if you fall in love with me, you're also not going to fall in love with me. You might act like you're falling in love with me. You might sort of give some sort of outward signs to trick me. But in your heart, you're not going to be falling in love with me just because you don't want to get beaten up or because you want $100,000. That is not love. That's the opposite of love. Love involves freedom. You have to be free to give love. Love has to be a free gift. And so if God is looking for our love, if God created us to love him and to love one another, then there is no meaningful way that we can do that if we're just running a program. Two robots can't fall in love. You can have a program that makes them say, meep, morp, I love you, or you can like make two robots kiss or whatever, but that's not what we humans mean by falling in love. These are just two objects that are doing things that approximate love, but that's not love at all. So for God to achieve this vision of humanity, which was a vision of love, We have to be free to either choose God or choose to turn away God. And so God says, again, I set before you the way of life and the way of death, not because he created the way of death, which he didn't. That's introduced into the garden through the fall. That's not a creation of God. That's not a part part of God's will. It's the opposite of God's will. But the path of life is the path to God, the path of love, the path of peace, path of goodness, the path of joy, and God says, choose life. And when we do start to make that choice, it's because he's given us grace, all of us. And when we continue down that path, it's because he's giving us grace, all of us. And turn by turn, step by step, we can either say, yes, I'll take some more grace, or thanks, I've had enough, I'm going to go back to Robin and Thieven, or whatever it was I was doing before. And this is kind of the situation of humanity. We are free, and we are utterly dependent on the grace of God. This is the early church perspective. 
So God did not cause the Holocaust. God did not allow the Holocaust in the sense of looking down and being like, yeah, Hitler, go ahead. That, that, that's fine. It's not really my thing, but you know, you do you, I'm going to do me. That is not who God is at all. If that were God, we would be worshiping a weird monster who wanted the Holocaust to happen. That is insane. Instead, God gave you and me and St. Francis and Hitler a measure of freedom. And we are free to either accept God, accept the path of life, or reject him. I've heard people say that the best argument against Christianity is something like the Holocaust. How could a good God have this happen? But it's interesting that the early church would give the same answer that atheists give. He didn't have this happen. Hitler had this happen. Himmler had this happen. Goebbels had this happen. This is not God's doing. This is the doing of a horribly corrupt group of humans who decided to start seeing human life as meaningless. All God does is give us the freedom to choose him or to choose to turn away from him, to choose love or to choose hate, to choose goodness or to choose fear and selfishness. The rest is up to us. God doesn't create evil. We create evil. In fact, in his Incaridian, St. Augustine says that People talk about bad people, but there's no such thing as even a bad person because our very existence rests in the being of God, is a reflection of the being of God, is a reflection of the goodness and the love of God. And so the only bad person would have to be a totally non-existent person because we are made out of goodness. We just do everything in our power to avoid representing our true nature and to choose selfishness and fear and hate and greed and all these things instead. But even if you're willing to accept that early church understanding of our humanity, of our anthropology, you might still ask, okay, fair enough, I will concede that evil is mostly a human problem and not a God problem, but what about the natural world? What about when gentle lapping waves become crazy tsunamis? What about when normal patterns of cells become horrific cancers? What about when the world seems to go haywire and evil? And some of the fathers would say that this is actually a result of the fall. That in Genesis, we see this radical transformation of the world, which goes from a world in which everything is provided to humanity and to everyone who needs it, just growing on the trees, to a world in which man has to gain his food by the sweat of his brow. When um, procreation becomes this joyous commandment of God to something which involves the pain of childbirth. When you have this utter peace reigning in all creation to a world red in tooth and claw in which lions are killing lambs rather than laying down with them. Wolves are killing sheep rather than spending time hanging out in pleasant ways. The ushering of death into the world through the fall, the ushering of chaos into the world through the fall, this is not God's will. This is not God's plan. This is the result of human freedom in the Genesis narrative. So the world in which we live is not the world that God designed. It's this weird blip in which he set up a world. It was really fantastic. It's kind of gone wonky, and he's about to correct it again. But we live in that middle piece in which it hasn't yet been corrected. It's gone off course. The cancer is not God's will. 
God delights in the death of no one, desires the death of no one. Instead, he wills that all should be saved. And at some point, the new creation will be ushered in. Everything will be returned to a world free from bloodshed, free from cancer, free from suffering and anger and sickness and death itself. And so that is our Christian hope. That is what we are waiting for. We are waiting for the dawn of this new creation after our Lord returns. Thank you for being with me for a little more of the doctrine of the early church. Next time we will pick up with some of the actual history and move forward in time. It's great to be with you.